Well, good morning, everyone. You can make your way back to your seat. We're going to jump in God's Word together. We're going back into 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, and this morning we land on chapter 12. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 uh, contains some well-known passages, but overall it's a bit of a tricky section in Paul's letter. Uh, it's no Mark 13, but nonetheless, uh, Mark and I were having a few chuckles in the office over the last couple weeks that he got the abomination of desolation and I got trips to third heavens and thorns in the flesh. I thought he did a great job at Mark 13 and he's left for Toronto while I'm preaching 2 Corinthians 12, so I don't know if we want to read into that too much, but uh, I think he got the harder of the two chapters, to be honest. And God in his providence gave you all Easter in between. So, But this morning we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to look at the first 10 verses. And our title this morning is Of Thorns in Third Heavens, Paul's Guide to Suffering and the Supernatural. All right, so we've got a few things to cover. We're just going to do part one. Today we're just going to look at the first uh, six verses and more of the supernatural side of things and then... Uh, hopefully next week we'll look more at what Paul says about the thorn in the flesh. All right? Is that okay? All right. Why don't we pray, and then we'll start to dig in. So, Father, first of all, we're just so thankful for what you've already done and what you've already said and how you've encouraged us and how you've built us up, how you've reminded us of truth. We thank you for your presence here with us. We thank you that we don't have to do a whole bunch of things to try to call you down, uh, but you are with us by your Spirit, and we praise you for that. And as we come to your Word, we pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see. Our eyes lean more towards skepticism. They lean more towards uh, unbelief. We pray, Father, that you'd give us eyes to see what you want us to see this morning. We pray that you'd give us ears to hear. There's a lot of things preaching at us. There's a lot of things telling us a lot of lies like we've already heard during worship. We need your truth to reign. We pray that you give us ears to hear your truth this morning. And most of all, Father, we pray for hearts that understand. We don't want to leave here just knowing more things. We want our hearts to be changed as your Spirit works through your Word. And so we pray that you would do it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If you remember back in chapter 11, uh, Paul was constantly interrupting himself uh, to make it clear to the Corinthians that he is being foolish in his boasting. We looked at that a few weeks ago, probably a month or so ago uh, now. And we said that his boasting was foolish for two reasons. First, because it focuses on Paul and on his own character and his own spiritual experience instead of calling attention to God. And secondly, it was foolish because for the majority of it, he was boasting of his own weakness. And to the world, that just doesn't make sense. It's foolish. And so Paul kept interrupting himself in chapter 11 to make that clear. Uh, the situation with the Corinthians has gotten to a point here in chapters 11 and 12 where Paul realizes that to reach the Corinthians and shine a light on their folly uh, he's going to need to foolishly boast like his opponents, those who are leading the Corinthians away. So desperate times call for desperate measures. His opponents were boasting in their uh, ethnic pedigree, and so Paul foolishly boasts in 11.22, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they children of Abraham? So am I. And now in chapter 12, his opponents are boasting in their spiritual pedigree, and it forces Paul to boast, boast in his own visions and revelations, albeit quite uncomfortably he does so. So these first 10 verses of chapter 12 are really a continuation of Paul's thinking in chapter 11. He's just uh, carrying on from there, foolishly boasting in what his opponents think of as important, and freely boasting in those things which his, which his opponents think are foolish. Okay, so Paul's foolish boasting is going to continue here. And so once again, Paul's great love compels him to go to extreme measures to reach the Corinthians with truth, even to the point, as he says, of 
of playing the madman uh, and boasting in order to hopefully reach them. And he begins, you'll see in chapter 12, that he must go on boasting even though there's nothing to be gained by it. So Paul sees it as a, un, as a, as a necessary, unprofitable boasting. Okay, So it's important just to see that Paul's not just running his mouth uh, and trying to draw attention to himself. So that's what he's doing here. Chapter 11, chapter 12 is really a continuation of his train of thought in chapter 11. So what's he going to foolishly boast about here in chapter 12? Well, let's give it a give it a read and see. Second Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll read the first 10 verses. So he says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but, my own but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, I, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong." So, some familiar verses in there, but some doozies as well, right? All right, well, let's try to, try to jump in. So, what is Paul boasting about? He's boasting about third heavens and thorns in the flesh. And it's a difficult thing to wrap our heads around, but that's what we're going to look at this morning. So, in just ten short verses, I think once again we see that Paul's outlook on what it means to follow God is, if we're honest, quite a bit different than what we are used to. Paul has a theology that accommodates both ecstatic third heaven visions and intense thorn in the flesh suffering. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read 2 Corinthians 12, honestly, I just don't expect either of those things to be a regular part of my walk with God. Right, And so we read these 10 verses and it's like, whoa, this slams right up against what I'm used to in my following of God. Supernaturally taken up to paradise to hear things that cannot be uttered? Nope. And thorns in my flesh, messengers of Satan that are to be seen as a good thing in my life from God? Nope. We kind of gravitate towards the coffee, coffee cup verse, like, my grace is sufficient for you, right? It's like, whew, thank you, Lord. Your grace is sufficient for me. I'll put that on my caption under my reflective selfie on Instagram. His grace is sufficient for me, right? <laughs> but everything around it is weird stuff. Is weird stuff. And they're quite challenging things as well. Not that we struggle to understand what Paul is saying. It's pretty straightforward, but it's challenging because it's so different from how we approach our life as Christians. And so let me ask you a question first off. Would you rather your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates think that you are weak or think that you are weird? What would you rather? Would you rather people think you are weird strange or that they think you are weak that person is so strange or that person just isn't very impressive at all 
Many of us might struggle to come up with a choice between the two because I think both are quite undesirable for us. I asked my kids this week what they thought, and they all said that they'd much rather be known as weird than weak, which is good because when you come from a family of eight, then that kind of goes with the territory. Plus, half of them is from me, and so they need to get used to that as well, right? But that's good. So, but to be honest, uh, that may be the answer that most of us would give. We're okay with being a bit out there as long as people are still impressed by us. But what would you rather be known as? Weak or be known as the weirdo? But the desire to not be, most of us would probably land with choosing weird. I'm not going to do sh show of hands, but over weak, but I think the desire to not be seen as weird or as strange is still there, and I think we spend a lot of our effort doing our best to fit in and not stand out. There was an article that came across CBC a month ago or so, and it was entitled, Man Angry His Photo Was Used to Prove All Hipsters Look Alike, Then Learns It Wasn't Him. <laughs> so this is what it said. It said, a man threatened to sue a technology magazine for using his image in a story about why all hipsters look the same, only to find out the picture was of a completely different guy. <laughs> the story in the MIT Technology Review detailed a study about the so-called hipster effect, the counterintuitive phenomenon in which people who oppose mainstream culture all end up looking the same. The inclusion of a version of a Getty image photo of a bearded, flannel-wearing man tinted with a blue and orange hue, prompted one re reader to write to the magazine, your lack of basic journalistic ethics in both the manner in which you reported this uncredited nonsense and the slanderous, unnecessary use of my picture without permission demands a response, and I am, of course, pursuing legal action. A little confused, the creative director of the magazine wrote to Getty Images, where the photo was from, and said, look, we've got an angry reader who doesn't like the way we used his photo. Could you check that you know that he signed a model release and the license is all in order? And after checking the archive and details of the photo, Getty Images replied, actually, the motto, model in this photo does not have the same name as the person who wrote to you. And so they wrote to him and said, we don't think this is you. And he replied, I guess you're right, it's not. But not many of us really, truly want to stand out. Not many of us want to be seen as strange. The reason that a lot of us are wearing the same boots isn't because they improve our posture. Right? It's because we want to fit in. And even though we might be a bit more okay with being weird than weak, it still affects us in our walk with God as well. Maybe we're not just as aware of it. But it can peak up when in certain situations in our life, and I think this is one that I think I've felt over the years, and I think you've probably felt it as well. But this desire not to be seen as weak, not to be seen as strange, for me comes up on a Sunday morning uh, when maybe we've invited a friend or we've got extended family joining us, and uh, so everything's going well. We meet them in the parking lot. And uh, we come in, and Barb says hi at the door, and we say hi to Jack, and we come in, and uh, it's all good, and it's all very welcoming. They go over to get a coffee. That's a bit awkward. We have to tell them it's after. Uh, that's fine. We make our way in. We seat, sit down. Joe comes up. He says hello, a big hearty Joe laugh. We've forgotten all about the coffee now, and we're doing good. They see someone else from work that they didn't know was here. That's great. Everything's going well, right? We stand up. Beth starts to lead in, and we think, Oh, Lord, please. Oh, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And you know that I really want your kingdom to come. But there are some aspects of your kingdom that I think we should just leave in the heavenlies <laughs> this morning. Right? You know I trust you, you know I do, but I have a list of things that I would not like to see 
this morning. This person has never been to church before. This is their very first time, Lord. And in the middle of your prayer, you hear a stirring. Someone is walking to the front, right? And you think, please let it be a testimony of your love. Please let it be a reading of Psalm 23. Please, Lord, please, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. When they grab that mic, the Lord is my... No, it's a tongue. Right? No, it's a while we were worshiping, I had a picture of whatever, a walking windmill or something. Right? And you just buckle up and here we go. They are going to think that... I am so weird. I'm going to take from your laughter that that is not just me that feels that rise up on occasion. Not many of us are overly comfortable with being thought of as strange. And we're not overly comfortable with weakness either. For the most part, we approach our weaknesses as something to be covered up, glossed over, or pushed aside. And we put in a lot of effort to appear not as weak as we actually are. We work hard to present well. We work hard to present stronger, tougher, smarter, more well-read, more loving. We skew how we talk about our jobs ever so slightly so that it appears that we are accomplishing more than we actually are and are responsible for more than we actually are. We gloss over difficulties, hardships, illness, chronic pain, struggles, suffering. All of them are screaming at us, you're weak, but as long as no one else hears that, then we're fine. We want our successes known far and wide and our weaknesses hidden. Part of the reason that there's a new superhero movie in the theaters every blessed week of the year is that we love the superhero myth because we want to be one. We'd love to be floating above the masses as everyone looks at all our strength and adores us and praises us and sees no weakness. Even this week, I was asked by one of my kids, Daddy, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? In my head, I was thinking, the ability to not physically hear whining would be a decent option. <laughs> but you can't say those things out loud. So I just said flying and kept move, moving on. <clears throat> but nobody asks, if you could have an overwhelming weakness, what would it be, Daddy? If you could have uh, one unchangeable limitation, if you could endure one hardship, what would it be? Nobody asks those questions because power, strength leads to admiration and weakness does not. Unfortunately, the desire to hide our weaknesses affects our walking with God in a much more damaging way, I think, than our desire to not be strange. The desire to hide our weaknesses prevents us from really engaging with others and allowing others to bear our burdens with us whether that's with our family, our life group, so on. We would rather appear that we have it all together than to be knit together in true community. It keeps us from receiving strength and encouragement through prayer. If I go down front for prayer, I'm admitting to everyone here, I don't have it all together. I can't do it on my own. I'm weak. So I'll just stay here and keep worshiping even though my heart is so heavy. We would much rather be praised by others than prayed for by others. I don't want you to intercede for me. I want you to admire me. We don't want to be seen as weird we don't want to be seen as weak to the point that in our following of God, we can very easily adopt the slogan, just let me be comfortable and let me be common. To varying degrees, we all battle the temptation. Yes, I want to follow you, God, 
but not in a way that the world thinks is weird and certainly not in a way that endures suffering and embraces weakness. In our following of God, we feel this pull to be common, not stand out from anyone around us, and to be comfortable, not endure any type of weakness or suffering. Do you feel that? Because I feel that. I feel that. But here, Paul relates his experience following God, and it grinds against both of those things. His life was one of thorns and third heavens. But we just want to be common and comfortable. And so for the next two weeks, I'd like us to be challenged a bit by these first 10 verses of 2 Corinthians 12 and about how Paul talks about these things. If not expecting or hiding or avoiding or ignoring these things isn't right, then what perspective should we have towards supernatural experiences and unrelenting moments of suffering in our lives. So this week we'll look at the supernatural experiences, and next week we'll look at the moments of suffering and weakness. So I had the choice of doing one long message or two short ones, and I went with two short ones. And all God's people said, Amen. Right? I know we did the series on how to fight in church a few months ago, but there's no need to test it. All right, let's focus in on what Paul says about this supernatural experience and what we can learn from it. And from this morning, so encouraging during worship to see the Spirit at work, to see people responding, to see people contributing. So there might be an aspect where uh, I'm preaching to the choir a bit, but uh, I'm going to trust in God's leading, and I'm going to trust that He's going to work through His Word uh, to encourage us. All right, 2 Corinthians 1 to 6. I'm just going to read those first six verses again. He says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But if I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. All right. So Paul says, that he's going to take a minute here, and in a few verses, he's going to boast of visions and revelations. Visions and revelations. Visions and revelations are related, but they're not synonymous. Revelation would be the broader term. Uh, Visions being one of the many ways that a revelation might be given to a person. So all visions are revelations, but not all revelations are visions. Does that make sense? Sam Storm's defines it this way. He says, A vision is always seen, whereas a revelation might come in the form of an audible voice, an internal impression, an angelic encounter of some sort, a dream, a trance state, or a word or image disclosed to the mind of a believer. So under this header of I'm going to boast of visions and revelations, Paul relates one experience in more detail. And so we'll just tackle it by asking a couple questions. First, how did it happen? Paul says that he was caught up. This phrase is only used in one other place by Paul, and that's 1 Thessalonians 4:17, where it talks of how believers will be caught up in the air to Jesus when he returns. It's also used in Acts 8:39 when Philip was carried away by the Spirit. And so the word suggests something swift, a sudden translation It's not slow or gradual. It also carries the idea that one experiencing it is not responsible for it. Paul is not responsible for his experience. He was caught up. He was caught up. It's not something you can train to do or be taught how to bring about. It's a sovereign, gracious work of God. 
Second, where was Paul caught up to? He says in verse 2 that uh, it was the third heaven. Uh, So some believe that the Old Testament points to three levels of heaven. A basic breakdown would be one is our atmosphere, two is the stars and the planets, space, and three would be what probably you and I think of when we hear the word heaven, which is the abode of God, right? So this is supported by Paul referring to it as paradise in verse 3. One is reminded of Jesus' words on the cross to the thief beside him, today you will be with me in paradise. So he has been caught up by God into heaven, into paradise. And so intense and mysterious and quick is the transition that Paul doesn't know if he was actually physically taken there or if it was some out-of-body experience. So that should get your head kind of reeling a little bit, right? He says twice, he says it. Was I in the body? Was I out of the body? I don't know. So if you think, what in the world was this? Was he out of the body? Was he in the body? Paul says, I don't know. God knows. Lastly, what happened while he was there? Paul gives very little details here only that he heard things which he can't talk about. It could be that Paul is saying that what he heard was so fantastic, so heavenly, maybe even in another language, in a heavenly language, that he, can't, uh, he couldn't wrap his head around it, that he can't repeat it. It's more likely that God spoke things to him and then forbade him from sharing those things. They were words just for Paul. Why give him the experience if he can't share it? John Calvin wrote, This thing happened for Paul's own sake, for a man who had been waiting... Sorry, I'll start over. This thing happened for Paul's own sake, for a man who had awaiting him troubles hard enough to break a thousand hearts needed to be strengthened in a special way to keep him from giving way and help him persevere undaunted. So it's an amazing grace of God to Paul because he knew what was coming and we looked at all those you can go back and look at them in chapter 11 he knew what was coming for Paul and so in his grace he blesses him with this way to encourage him but says it's not it's, it's, I don't want you to go back down and then just I forbid you from sharing all of this it's just for you There's more that we could focus on there, trying to wrap our heads around to understand it. But we should move on from for what we can learn from what Paul says here. So he's caught up to paradise, and God spoke things to him that he cannot repeat. So what can we learn from what Paul says here? Two things. First, is that we shouldn't dismiss dismiss supernatural experiences like visions and revelations or diminish their importance in instructing, guiding, and encouraging believers. So that's the first thing we see from Paul is that we shouldn't dismiss supernatural experiences like visions and revelations or diminish their importance in instructing, guiding, and encouraging believers. When you look at the life of Paul and you read through Acts and you read through his letters, you see even just focusing on the kind of visions and revelations aspect of the supernatural work in his life and the spiritual gifts that he employed, even just looking at those things, you see that it's not just possible, but they are quite beneficial to his life and ministry. So Paul's conversion began with a revelatory encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Galatians 2.2, Paul says that he went up to Jerusalem because of a revelation that he had. In Acts 16.9-10, Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia that led him to go preach the gospel in Philippi. Acts 18.9-10, The Lord appears to Paul in a vision and instructs him to return to Corinth and keep preaching, keep ministering. 
In Acts 22:18, here's one for you. Paul falls into a trance while praying in the temple in Jerusalem, and God tells him to get out of Jerusalem. Acts 23:11, Paul says that the Lord stood beside him and told him to take courage. In Acts 27, Paul is on a ship when an angel stood before him and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. So you can't simply read the account of the early church and fail to see that they believed revelatory gifts and other supernatural phenomena were of great benefit to edifying the church. Paul's visions and revelations instructed guided and encouraged him throughout his ministry. So we shouldn't dismiss them or diminish them in the church. I'm sure there's a whole bunch of practical guidelines around that. We don't have time this morning to really unpack that. Yes, we want to be grounded in Scripture. Yes, we want to use spiritual discernment. But we see from the life of Paul and his ministry and the account of the New Testament the importance and how these visions and revelations guided Paul in his ministry, encouraged him when he was at the point of breaking. So secondly, we need to see the importance. We shouldn't dismiss. We shouldn't diminish nor should we improperly elevate supernatural experiences like visions and revelations. So what Paul relates here should encourage us and remind us of the supernatural life that we are engaged in, but the way he talks about it should also bring some caution and some humility. If you notice first that Paul hasn't been very quick to tell of his supernatural experience. He's waited 14 years to ever bring it up. He's waited 14 years to ever bring it up. Most people who experience something like this would barely be able to contain themselves, right? Today, the preferred course of action would be to immediately write a book, Next Stop Paradise, a personal account of my trip to the third heaven and back, right? Then the next year, you would write Next Stop Paradise Youth Edition, right? If you give it a couple years, you cast Roma Downey to star in the made-for-TV movie Next Stop Paradise, right? And accompanying the release of the movie, you've made a 12-session course uh, that you can go along with it, Next Stop Paradise for you, the seven secrets for how you can have a heavenly vision as well, right? Paul has waited 14 years to ever bring this up and even does so only because he feels compelled that he's because he feels like he's going to lose the Corinthians and he's at desperate measures because of the desperate circumstance he's in. Had he never felt strongly enough that his foolish boasting would win the Corinthians, he would have taken this spiritual experience to his grave. And even when he does mention it, he tells the story in the third person. We're not going to get into was it another person, was it Paul? I think it's clear that it's Paul. Anyway, if you feel strongly otherwise, brent.smith at christcentral.ca and we can chat. But he tells the story in the third person, showing his distaste for even bringing it up. And when he does talk about it, he gives very little detail about it because his purpose isn't to draw attention to what he experienced so that the Corinthians might be fascinated by the event itself. His desire is to win them back to his apostolic oversight and so win them back to Christ. So it's like, what did he say? What did he see? What? what? He doesn't give any details. He lets the truth be known of what he's experienced because he feels it will win the Corinthians back and that's it. There's no book. There's no movie. There's no youth edition, right? There's no small group discussion. He's not looking to coin off of it. He's not looking to gain a big following 
from it. The other thing that Paul makes clear is that his visions and revelations and supernatural experiences are not the basis on which we should judge the legitimacy of his ministry and calling. These visions are not the ground for his apostolic authority. If you want to know what the ground is for his apostolic authority, he's going to get into that next week. He says in verse 1 that there's nothing to be gained by it, not that there's nothing beneficial in the vision itself. It was great encouragement to Paul, but he's saying that there's no benefit in boasting of it, boasting in it so that the Corinthians can see he's a legit apostle. He says in verse 6 that he doesn't want people to think more of him than what they hear and see in him. In other words, he doesn't want the Corinthians to have an elevated view of him based on visions and revelations that they have not seen, but instead they should assess his ministry by Paul's words and actions, no matter how spectacular the claim is to a private spiritual experience, it cannot displace conduct and speech as a more reliable indicator of truly following Christ. And that should get us our, our attention because how quick are we in the church to elevate gifting over character? How many times has someone risen to influence and power and fame in the church because of their claim of supernatural gifting or supernatural experience or gifting even though their character might be questionable? Paul says to the Corinthians, I might have told you this story, but please, please, please form your opinion of me based on my actions and my words. And don't let this vision be the reason you submit to my authority or embrace my ministry. Instead, let it be the consistency of my character, the choices I've made, the words I've preached, the suffering I've endured. So like Paul, we shouldn't deny the reality of supernatural experiences in the life of a believer, but neither should we look for others to think highly of us or submit to us because of them. Paul puts his vision in its proper place. Did it encourage him? Yes. Was it beneficial for him? Yes. Did he use it to try to gain influence over people? No. Should he mass market it to everyone so that everyone who meets him admires him? No. One of the reasons Paul is even reluctant to share is that he doesn't want the Corinthians to think more highly of him because of that. Imagine that. That might be the most striking thing in the whole passage. Paul doesn't want people to think more highly of him. How's that for countercultural? Paul didn't want to be tweeted about. He wasn't constantly checking to see how many likes his third heaven story got. What if this telling of this story gets me too many followers? We don't share those same concerns with Paul. So what's our takeaway here? In all reality, we probably won't experience the same thing that Paul experienced here. We probably won't be mysteriously transported to paradise and have God tell us things that can't be repeated. As we saw with John Calvin's quote, I think it was a pretty intense personal experience for Paul in light of what he was going to suffer in the name of Christ. But our theology should be able to handle that as a possibility. Paul even says that he doesn't know if it was out of body or not. Does our theology, is it able to accommodate that? It might bring up some questions. It might make us scratch our heads a bit, and that's fine. But I think at the very least, it should serve for us this morning as a reminder that Christianity is not simply just some nice ideas about loving our neighbors. Christianity is nothing if not supernatural. Take away the supernatural 
and you no longer have Christianity. When you came to Christ, it wasn't just that your sins were forgiven. The Bible says that you were supernaturally recreated into something else. That you were living in death and a kingdom of darkness and you were supernaturally taken out of that and placed in life and a kingdom of light. It's something that is so, such a supernatural work of God that Jesus, when he's looking for an illustration, he says, it's like you were born. Christianity is a supernatural work. It's a supernatural faith. So we believe that, but we don't believe God can speak to us in a dream. It's a supernatural thing. So we need to be okay with a little weirdness. Yes, we always want to ground things in God's Word, and yes, we always want to be spiritually discerning, but we also need to be careful that we are not so comfortable in our ways that we don't box in a new work of the Spirit in our lives and in our church, and that our desire to not stand out leaves us with a shell of Christianity. And that's true for us as much as it's true for any other church in the city. We can't get too comfortable in our ways. When I look at my own life, sometimes I want it all. Sometimes I want supernatural experiences and visions and revelations and prophecy and bold evangelism. Sometimes I want it all. Most of the time I think I just want Jesus to make me a slightly more loving person than my neighbor. Just give me just a little bit more joy than my neighbor. Just give me a little bit more peace than my neighbor. At least that's how I practically live it out. Sometimes I want it all. Preparing for this message, you want it all. But then when you look at your life, you think, for the most part, I just live like Jesus, just make me slightly better than my neighbor. And I'd be fine with that. Church, if you're anything like me, we need a greater hunger for the things of God. We need a greater appetite for the things of God. Even in our church that believes all the gifts are for today, even in our church that prays for and believes God heals today, let's not get comfortable. Let's not get apathetic. Let's not get lazy in our pursuit for the things of God. We should take seriously the words of the prophet Joel that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost when he said, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And take Paul at his word when he tells us to eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially that we would prophesy. Friends, that's not a suggestion. He's not saying, just have an open mind to spiritual gifts. He says, eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Don't just desire them, eagerly desire them. And in your eager desiring for spiritual gifts, Make sure that you especially eagerly desire to prophesy.
Maybe you've been saying for years, I'm open to spiritual gifts. But Paul doesn't say be open to spiritual gifts. He says, desire them. That's a biblical command. And it's not just for the elders and a select few leaders. That's for everyone. That's biblical instruction for you this morning. Earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you would prophesy. In his book, Forgotten God, Francis Chan says that the church becomes irrelevant when it becomes a purely human creation. We are not all we were made to be when everything in our lives and churches can be explained apart from the work and presence of the Spirit of God. So if our church can be explained apart from the work and the presence of the Spirit of God, are we okay with that? Are we content with that? If we don't have visions and revelations and prophecy, are we okay with that? Also, I would add, are we wanting to grow in character? Are we wanting people to gauge us by our speech and our conduct? Or if God has gifted us in a particular way, are we content to just live any old way and say, well, I prophesied this morning, so God is with me, so who cares what my character is? Paul's showing us both sides of the coin. We should be a church that is desiring spiritual gifts and seeking to see the fruit of the Spirit rise up in us as well. I don't know about you, but I want to be a church that has visions and revelations of God, but is also living in the power of the Spirit to be an imitator of God. I want to be a a charismatic church of character. That's what I want to be. We're going to end there. While I was praying this morning for this message, I think when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit, when it comes to the miraculous, when it comes to the supernatural, I think we can have a hesitancy that stems from fear. And I've been there and in many ways still there. Or at least not as unafraid as I would like to be. But I think we can have a hesitancy when it comes to supernatural and the gifts of the Spirit because of fear. And I think one thing is that we can be we can have an unhealthy fear of God. And so it was great to see so many contribute this morning. I think there were some people that wanted to contribute, but you felt or you see God as judge, lording over and saying to you, you think you can come and bring that? How dare you? Yelling at your kids this week and then you're going to get up and share that? You need to know that that's from the enemy. That they are spiritual gifts, not spiritual merit badges on your sash of Christianity. I think some of us might be hesitant to pursue spiritual gifts because of a fear of Satan. And we trust more in Satan's power to deceive us than in God's power to lead us. But I think the main one is that we're afraid of the other people sitting in the row beside us. So I think there's some people, even this morning, as Hazel sang, as the tongue was brought, as the interpretations were given, you felt your heart stirred felt God speaking to you. You felt like you wanted to share. But then the fear comes, what will that person beside me think? See, we don't want to just seem strange to the world around us. 
We don't want to seem strange to the person sitting beside us. And my own experience is that that fear often holds Christians back more than a fear of what the world might think. I've never brought a tongue before. I've never given a prophetic word. What is that person three seats down going to think of me if I do that? I am very encouraged by the things that were brought this morning. But I think there were some other things that could have been shared, but weren't because of fear. And my prayer is that as a church, we would be just done with that fear. We'd have a desire to follow God into all that he has for us. We wouldn't let the enemy obstruct us. We wouldn't let those lies of who God thinks we are obstruct us. We wouldn't let the fear of the person sitting two seats down obstruct us, but we would have that desire to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Why don't we stand? Beth and the team can come back up and I'll just pray for us and then I'll turn things over to Joe. Father, we love Your Word. We love Your Word. We love how it stirs us, how it provokes us, how it reminds us of truth, how it wakes us up out of our apathy, how it refocuses us and re-centers us. And Father, we just confess that we want to be a church that believes in practices the gifts of the spirit we want to be a church that's filled with the spirit we want to be a church that eagerly desires spiritual gifts and a desire to seek the fruit of the spirit in us as well we do want to be father a church where your spirit is on display in us and through us we want to be a church of character as well as a church that could be labeled charismatic. We pray that you would do it, Father. We pray that you would drive out all fear. We thank you that you have not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. We trust you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. All right, let's worship together and then we'll give some more direction as we uh, seek the leading of the Holy Spirit. So let's worship together.